invite you to open up in your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 1, and as you were doing, to stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 1. For those of you that still use those old paper Bibles, you're going to want to hold your finger in Genesis 1 and also have a spot marked in Genesis 9. I want to read in your hearing this morning from a couple of verses in Genesis 1 and then one over in Genesis 9. So I'm going to begin in Genesis 1, beginning in verse 26. This is the word of God. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then if you would look over very quickly to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You can be seated. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. So said Charles Dickens, anyway. There's a sense, though, in which I think that resonates with us on a couple of different levels. In one sense, I I think it's fair to say that, that we are experiencing the best of times. We, we all have more servants on our smartphones than King Solomon had in his courts. We, we, we literally have harnessed the ability to control the climate, at least inside, by virtue of a thermostat. When you venture to the grocery store, you find aisles and aisles of chips and cereal. And AI technology is producing self-driving cars. It's all good. At the same time, it's also the worst of times. Suicide rates are shockingly high. Inflation is hitting all of us. Drugs are rotting bodies. Porn is rotting souls. And our country remains rigidly divided over political lines. You zoom out from that, and I I think no matter how you slice it, we Christians, we are living in some pretty interesting times to put it mildly. This is especially true, this Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Let me give you a little context. This year marks the 39th year that our nation has observed Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Its origins go all the way back to 1984 when President Ronald Reagan issued a proclamation designating January 22nd as Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. It's a day when churches all across our land mourn the lives lost to the evil of abortion, humble ourselves, call on our city and our leaders to repent, and a day in which we offer the gospel to those who would hear it. 
This has been going on since 1984, but this year looks a little different, not just from 1984, but even from last year. And that's because this year we observe this day in light of the fact of Roe being overturned, an unjust ruling that never should have been yielded to in the first place. But be that as it may, we are living in what has been called post-Roe times. So, perhaps you followed some of this. In some states, legislation has been brought to the floor that would completely outlaw abortion. Other states have gone for a more incremental approach, seeking to eliminate abortion depending upon age or development of the child. It would be well to know that neither is the case here in our state. Truth be told, Washington and its leaders have only resolutely dug their heels in, doing all that they can to make the murdering of unborn children not only quick and easy, but also affordable. So the question that all Christians and churches are faced with is how are we supposed to respond to all of this? And at one level, we need to say, well, we ought not to respond by simply sort of utilitarian, pragmatic half measures. We all learned this when we were little. You don't put out grease fire with, a, with, with water. Neither do you put band-aids on gunshot wounds. As the church, God has committed to us His Word. And one of our chief convictions must be that God has deigned to put power in His Word. And so that means that a faithful church response to all of this will be this. We will preach and pray. We will labor and we will love. We will encourage and we will equip and we will evangelize. And in and through all of this, we will do so trusting that God will accomplish His purposes in and through the faithful proclamation of His law and gospel. So what that means here this morning is this. We are not going to send around a petition. I'm not going to ask you to sign something. What we are going to do is with our Bibles open, we are going to seek to understand what God has told us about you and I being made in His image. And then what are some of the implications of humanity being made in God's image. To begin to think about this, as Christians, we must not only hear, but heed sacred Scripture. Too many, whether outside of the church or unfortunately even some in the church, rather than seeking God's word, they approach this subject as if God is silent on the matter. This is not only true with issues like abortion, but as we've seen over the last couple of years, sort of identity, sexual ethics, what justices, a whole host of pertinent issues are approached by the world and by the church as if God has said nothing. We ought to heed Spurgeon's warning. There is dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. Church, the triune God has not left us alone in the dark to grope. His word, as the psalmist instructs us, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And so this morning we will seek not just to hear Scripture, but to heed it. And more specifically, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to the record of Genesis. 
And we will discover the origin of humanity and intimately related to that, the purpose of humanity. In a lot of ways, this morning is going to be wrapped up with fleshing out that Latin phrase, imago Dei, or image of God. It's important to know at the front end that humanity, unlike every single creature, humanity and humanity alone is made uniquely in God's image. If you put your eyes on verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1, you will see how helpfully redundant it is. Verse 27 records, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. So I want you to understand, what separates us from dogs and trees and whales and rocks and scorpions and oceans and stars and mountains and clouds and angels is this. We are made in God's image. But of course, this begs the question, what does it look like for you and I to bear God's image? Let me give you four words. Four words that will fill in and give shape to the Imago Dei. To begin, we rule. Part and parcel to the image of God is that humanity was created to rule. Verse 26, God declares, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them, that is humanity, let them have dominion, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The key word there in verse 27 is dominion, or rather verse 26. Verse 28 echoes the same idea. Humanity is to subdue it, that is the earth. We are to subdue the earth and have, here it is again, dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So here's what we discover from the very beginning. Man and woman are created in God's image. We are created to be like God. And in this context, what it means to be like God is to rule like God. Humanity is to exercise dominion. This earth, this creation that God has given to us, we we are to subdue it and cultivate it and rule over it. Just as earthly kings rule over their nations, so as those made in God's image, we are to rule over this world. It's one way we bear God's image. Here is a second. Reproduce. Reproduce. Put your eyes again on verse 28. Scripture tells us, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. In Genesis 1, you have Adam and you have Eve. But the point is, the story is not intended to end there. As image bearers, our first parents were to fill the earth with lots and lots of other image bearers. Lots of little ones who would eventually grow up to become big ones who would then have their own little ones. That's the idea. I'm just going to pause very briefly and say that what this reveals, among other things, is that literally, from the very beginning, God designed you and I to fall in love, to marry, to have sex, to make babies, and to raise families. 
And I bring that up because we're sort of in a cultural moment, it would seem, when if we sort of express that those are the desires of our hearts, it's sort of looked at as if we are wrong or something. No. This is actually part of the Christian life. It's part of being made in the image of God. God created, and then God has called us to create, to, to reproduce, to, to follow him, to do what he did. Just like you little ones, you, you see your dad working on something, making something, and what do little ones always want to do? They want to come alongside and help. This is what God wants us to do. God says, look at this world I made. Look what I created. Be like me. Go make babies. Allow me, know, allow me now a third word that gives shape to all of this image bearing. It's the word represent. The, the language here in our passage, the language of image, it is significant. In verse 26, the triune God says, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. See the same language again in verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So again, we are, as human beings, the closest thing in all of creation that images God. We are a mirror, if you like, for the divine. Now let's be very clear, none of this means that God has a literal face, or two eyes, or a torso, or flesh, and bone. That's not it. But it does mean that God created us to represent Him. This is what images do. This is what they are intended to do. To do. They, they project, right? Image conveys identity. If you were to pull out a quarter and, and flip it around and look what's on that quarter, you would find an image of George Washington's face. But none of us would mistake that quarter for being George Washington. It merely represents him. Similarly, as those made in God's image, we are to be his living and moving and breathing representatives all over the world. Maybe to go at this from a little bit of a different direction, we would do well to recognize how common it was, particularly in the ancient world, for different pagan religions to erect images or statues of their gods. So you would go to such and such a temple, and there you would see an image, a massive image of, of Zeus. Then, just down the road, as you fixed your eye on the skyline, you would see a, a hill or a mountain, and then you'd have an altar set up to another god there. And then as you went downtown to the marketplace to buy your groceries, there you would see erected a, a, another image of a, of a god, some shrine. It was all the rage in the ancient world. And it was, and still is today, flagrant idolatry. And that's because you and I are supposed to be the image of God. You and I are supposed to represent God. Maybe go back to a second, uh, for a second to our, our previous R word, that word reproduce. Remember, uh, part of the plan was for human beings to have lots and lots of babies to fill the earth. Why? So that from all four corners of the globe, there would be representation. There would be image bearers of the true and living God. 
You might think of it this way. It would be like when a king conquers a land. One of the first things that the king does is he, he sets up a flag let ev- letting everyone know this is his territory. It belongs to him. Well, in that sense, we are like God's flags. And he wants flags posted up all over the world, letting him know that this is his territory. Let me give you a final word. The word relationship. This is part of being made in the image of God, and it's alluded to in at least two ways in our passage. The first is that the triune God is a triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always and forever enjoyed pure, undiluted, and holy communion with each other. There was never a time when Father, Son, and Holy Spirit didn't love one another. Within the Godhead, you have an eternal relationship of love because the triune God is the eternal God. Now, with that in mind, when you look at verse 26, and we are told, let us make man in our image after our likeness, we are immediately keyed in on this, aren't we? When God says, let us make man in our image, well, who's the us? Who's the our? There's a couple of different ideas that have been proposed over the years. Some have said this is like a council of gods, But we know that the scriptures teach there is only one true and living God, so we can chuck that pretty quick. Another idea is that God is talking about the angels. But nowhere in scripture are we told that we are made in the image of angels. And so I think that that the ancient Christian interpretation is the correct one. When God says, let us make man in our image, the us and the our is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So just as the triune God is in eternal relationship with himself, God has made humanity, wired us, designed us to enjoy relationship as well. The other way that this idea of relationship is alluded to is how verse 27 builds off of and expands verse 26. We read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice up to this point, it is God creating man. It is God creating him. Now, all of a sudden, you have male and female. You have man and woman. And the implication here is more than just the fact that both man and woman are made in the image of God. That's more than obvious. I think what ought to be leaned into at this point is that male and female, they were created to be in relationship one with another so that male and female together would faithfully bear the image of God. What this means is that generally speaking, man is not to be solo, and neither is woman. God has designed humanity, man and woman, to come together in a one-flesh covenantal union. I say all that because when you zoom out and you look at the entirety of Genesis chapter 1, what is this reoccurring announcement? What is the drum that is beaten? What is the banner that is waved? God's creation is what? According to Genesis 1. It's good. 
we are told by Moses that everything that God created was good. And then at the end of the chapter, Genesis 1.31, when all of creation is complete, it's not just good, but it is very good. So this is what you have in Genesis. You have, zoom out, creation is good, 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 very good. It's all good. Now I say that because you have that beautiful orchestra of good playing in your ears in Genesis 1. And then when you come to Genesis 2, verse 18, that whole thing stands out like a sore thumb. Because it is the first time in the Genesis record where God tells us that something in creation wasn't good. Well, what wasn't good? Genesis 2.18. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So man needs woman. Adam needs Eve. Here's my point. God created humanity in his image. And part of that image bearing is that we, you and I, are made for relationship. Just as God is a relational being within the Holy Trinity, so too, as those made in his image, we are built for relationship. Not just with God, but with one another. Adam needed his wife. Parents need their children. Children need their parents. Christians need the local church. We need one another. And this is not by accident. This is by design. It's actually part of you and I bearing the image of God. Now, lest we miss for the, for, the forest for the trees, with that all too brief overview of what it means to be made in the image of God, I want us to see how abortion is a massive, massive evil. And it's a massive evil because according to Genesis 1, it does violence to the image of God. Which means that when we're talking about abortion or the sanctity of human life, we are not talking first and foremost about a political squabble. Abortion in our day, like slavery was in the 19th century, this is more than politics. This is such a great evil that it actually brings a stench in the nostrils of God. And the scriptures tell us it provokes God to actually uproot those people from their land. I mentioned this in passing because not too long ago, I was laboring, out at, laboring down at the mill, handing out tracts and preaching. And all of a sudden, there was a man in an automobile who, who stopped by, and he was curious as to what all of the commotion was, what, what was sort of going on. And he, he sort of surveyed, asked a couple of questions, and, and he immediately came to the conclusion. He said, oh, this is just a political thing. And he sped off. But church, abortion is not a political thing. Granted, in our two-party system, one party treats abortion as a sacrament, and the other is too cowardly to do anything about it. But according to God's word... According to Genesis 1, we're not talking about politics. We're talking about God and his law and his creation and, and what it means to bear his image. And this is true for big image bearers, and it's also true for tiny 
image bearers. Given this reality, what I want us to do is set Genesis 1 and what it means to bear God's image. I want to set it alongside of abortion. And I want to do that so you can see how radically different these two ideologies are. To begin with, we've seen that bearing God's image means ruling. But abortion is tyranny. It is tyranny to sacrifice your children upon the altar of convenience or career. To regard abortion as a contraceptive or so-called health care or so-called reproductive rights. Church, that is not us subduing the earth, but that is us subduing our children. We must recognize that while we have been called as those made in God's image to rule, we do so under the authority of our Creator, the chief ruler. We are not sovereign. We are not autonomous. Every ounce of the authority that we have as those made in God's image is derived. And so to execute our children in the womb and call it good, and to think that that is somehow a faithful sort of uh, like working out of our being made in God's image, that is about as perverse as it gets. It is anathema to our Creator who gave us these sons and daughters. You remember, another aspect of bearing God's image is reproducing. But of course, abortion is antithetical to this. I want you to note, in Genesis chapter 1, God has called us to be fruitful. But so many have decided to be sterile. God has commanded commanded us to multiply and fill the earth. We have chosen to subtract and fill the morgues. Abortion is, and this is not just sort of preacher hyperbole, abortion is the complete inversion of what it means to be human. You'll know that there are certain countries who try and limit how many children you are allowed to have. Such tyrannical overreach is opposed to God's law. Others, though, and this is true not just of other countries, but of our very own, what you will find is you will find young couples who flatly refuse to have children at all. I don't know if they're still called this, but when I was younger, they were known as dinks. Dual income, no kids. And you had all kinds of dinks. They wanted to travel. They wanted to enjoy their freedom. They essentially wanted to do whatever they want. You know what that's called? Well, it's called sin. It's called rejecting God's word. Now, I'm the first to grant that there are exceptions to every rule. Don't misunderstand me. But the exceptions only prove the rule. God tells us that marriage is intended to produce children and that the children that are produced from marriage are a blessing. But in today's world, we have slews of marriages that refuse to have children, and instead of calling children blessings, they call children cursings. Just imagine for a moment God backing up a dump truck of blessings only to have His creatures shake their fists and shake their heads and call those blessings curses. This is tragic. 
And it's tragic because not only is that the mantra of the world, but it has infected the church. I would then invite you to think about that third word, represent. Part of being made in God's image is representing him to the world. I trust, we can all agree, abortion is a gross, violent distortion of God's image. And I say that because the triune God is the God of life, light, and love. Not death, darkness, and doom. In Genesis 1, God creates life and he calls it good. And then he tells us to do the same. God loves his children. He loves you and I. And he calls us to do the same with our earthly children. But instead, we drive to a nice, sanitized medical facility where our innocent and helpless children will literally be torn limb from limb. I don't know if you know this, but that's what they do every Monday less than a mile down the road. So-called doctors will go in with tools, many of which resemble the tools that you and I would have in our shed or our garage, and they tear limbs off of children. They cut spinal cords. They crush skulls. And then they suck out these image bearers in essentially a shop vac. And they do this across our nation to the tune of about 3,000 a day. Think about that. Now, I truly apologize for being graphic, but it needs to be said. We need to be awakened to this great evil. Our stomachs are supposed to turn. We are supposed to wince. We've grown far too comfortable and far too desensitized to these horrors. It is supposed to make us sick. And if it doesn't make us sick, then we need to ask why. Why? Finally, I would invite you to recall that final R word, the word relationship. God has designed humanity in such a way where the family is the building blocks of civilization. You have fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, grandpas and grandmas, uncles, aunts, and a slew of cousins everywhere. That's how it's supposed to be. A man meets a woman, wins her hand, and marries her. And they have kids, and those kids have kids, and those kids' kids have kids. And a whole society is built. But abortion circumvents all of that. It strikes right at the heart of the family. And that's because abortion doesn't only tear limbs off of our children, but it also tears at the very fabric of the family. It cuts off and it cuts short the relationships that God has designed for us. Now perhaps to all of this, you shake your head. Maybe you even wonder, well, what's the big deal? And I want you to know some have. After having labored at the mill, believe it or not, this whole thing of so what, what's the big deal, that is not an uncommon response. If you only watch the mainstream media, you'll be tempted to think that all of these mothers are simply victims. They don't know any better, we are told. And perhaps that is true of some. But after standing on a corner for two years now and ministering to these ladies, the vast 
majority know exactly what abortion is and exactly what they are doing. They are murdering their own children. And you know what the response is? I don't care. Which means the stakes are very high. If you flip over in your Bible to Genesis chapter 9 and look at verse 6 once more. In the context, this is after the flood and sort of a starting over with Noah. He finally steps out of the boat on dry land. And this is what God tells him in Genesis 9 verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. In other words, if you murder, you'll be executed. That's the thrust. If you shed blood, your blood will be shed. Just say in passing, this is one of the places, or one of the reasons, rather, that, that Christians have, ex- have historically lobbied for the death penalty. Because this is what God says. Notice, if you're looking at Genesis 9-6, though, how God grounds this assertion. Why should murderers be executed? End of verse 6. For God made man in his own image. You see, it harkens all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? Because humans are uniquely made in God's image, they are inherently valuable. And we have to understand this is true regardless of age, development, size, gender, or skin color. Humans and humans alone are made in God's image, which means... To murder another human being is actually theological. And it is theological because you are seeking to destroy the very image of God. Such a reality should be a wake-up call, particularly to the state in which we live. I say that because those in authority over us here in Washington, they care more about salmon and eagles than they do people. And this is not only a sad state of affairs, it is really evidence of God's judgment already being upon us. It is is God's judgment to have men and women ruling over us who do so contrary to His law. Such folks, to borrow the language of Romans 1, they claim to be wise in Olympia, but they have become fools. Remember, church, God has no patience for the shedding of innocent human blood. This is what Genesis 9-6 tells us. And we have to know deep in our bones that this is true, whether or not that innocent life is out of the womb or in the womb. So based on Genesis 9, verse 6, let me ask you, what do abortionists deserve? What about mothers who execute their children? Fathers who escort them in? Grandfathers and grandmothers who encourage it? Well, granted, to varying degrees, don't misunderstand me, they are all guilty of homicide. Which means that justice would demand, in some cases, their life for the life of the child. That is a A simple, straightforward application of Genesis 9, 6. That is what justice is. 
In our day and age, we often view justice as some contorted version of a few lawmakers, or even worse, we think that justice is determined by the majority of what the country thinks. Nonsense. True justice is found only in God's law. Those who shed innocent blood deserve to have their blood shed. And while this is utterly true, we all find ourselves in the same boat. By that I mean this, we all, if we're honest, find ourselves on the wrong side of Genesis 9-6, even if we are not guilty of abortion. Though, uh, Gallup and Pew Research reveals that one in five women in a church have committed abortion. So let us not think that this is an out there problem and that we in here have it all figured out. Listen to what Christ says. He says, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, you ever been on the, on the highway and said that? You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now that comes from Christ's Sermon on the Mount. And what Christ is doing in that particular portion of the sermon is he's sort of drilling in, letting us know that the law of God is not just concerned with our actions, but also our attitudes. It's one thing to actually commit murder, to commit abortion. And there are consequences for that sin and crime. That's true. But we, who have not dirtied our hands by abortion, don't have the luxury of sitting here all smug and think that we have clean hands. And that is because Christ tells us that if we have been angry with someone, fill in kids, husband, wife, neighbor, person on the highway, if you have ever been angry with someone, it is equivalent to murder. Now, of course, the earthly consequences are different. We don't want to conflate those. I'm not suggesting that you shaking your fist at that driver and physical murder are the same in terms of consequences. But both are sin. And the wages of sin is death. Which means that every single one of us deserve hell for our sin. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Christ has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. To wrap your head and hearts around this, I want us to once again return to those four R words, those words that sort of paint for us what it looks like to be made in God's image. And as we return to those, I want you to see Christ. And I want you to see how Christ, unlike any of us, is the actual perfect image bearer of God. He's the perfect human. He's the perfect image-bearer in our place. Think first of the call upon humanity to rule. As the second Adam, Christ was born to rule and reign over the earth. Unlike Adam, he did exercise dominion over creation. Unlike Adam, he did not succumb to the temptation of the serpent in the wilderness. He didn't doubt God's word. No, Christ trusted his heavenly Father. And then, upon the cross, Christ bruised his heel even as he crushed the head of that filthy snake. 
And ever since Christ's resurrection and ascension into heaven, Christ has been ruling over the cosmos as the God-man. To use the, Reve- the, the language of Revelation 19.6, Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. Or we might say, ruler of rulers. On top of that, Christ has been utterly fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth. He has, to use that R word, reproduced. Now, of course, I don't mean by that physically, but certainly spiritually. Scripture tells us that all who trust in Christ, they become God's sons and heirs with Christ. And so, through the gospel, the kingdom of God is continuing to advance in our world. Consider this. Every conversion to Christ, every missionary that is sent out, every church that is planted, it is like fertilizer on the soil of Christ's kingdom. Think of it this way. I'll let you choose the starting point for the church. Let's say you think that the church started with Adam and Eve in the garden. That's fine. Or you think that the church started at Pentecost. That's fine too. If you take the Adam route, the church started with two people, Adam and Eve. If you go the Pentecost route, the church started with what Acts 1 tells us was roughly 120 disciples. Either way, two or 120, the point is clear. Today, the Christian church boasts millions and millions of members all across the globe. Or, to return to the categories of Genesis 1, we have seen the kingdom be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Christ is also our faithful representative. Unlike Adam and us, Christ was and is the perfect human being. As the incarnate one, he never sinned, not once. And again, back to the law of God. It's not just that Christ didn't sin in his actions. It's also his attitudes, his motivations, He only ever loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he only ever loved his neighbor as himself. If we want to sort of get down and dirty and get in the gutter, really what we're saying is Christ did everything right that you did wrong. That's what we're talking about. He is pure and holy and righteous. And one of the utterly scandalous truths about the gospel is that all of his purity and all of his holiness and all of his righteousness, it becomes yours and mine forever. The very moment that we place our faith in Jesus Christ. As Romans 5 labors to show, in Adam we die, but in Christ we live. And we live because Christ lived for us. We live because Christ merited righteousness. We live because Christ is our faithful, covenant-keeping representative. Finally, we would do well to note that Christ was the epitome of humanity in terms of relationship. His communion with Father and Holy Spirit was unbreakable. He honored His earthly father and mother. He was patient and tender with his disciples, and Christ always walked in purity. And so because of Christ, we are brought back into right relationship with God. Because of what Christ did, because of who he is, he reversed 
the curse. Remember, Adam was booted from God's garden and God's presence so that the relationship between God and man was severed. It was breached. But Christ has come and he has brought us back into God's garden, back into God's presence so that that relationship between God and humanity that was breached, it has now been restored. And brothers and sisters, it has been restored by our great Redeemer's blood. The point not to be missed then is that Christ was and is the perfect image bearer. As 1 Corinthians 15 puts it, he was the last Adam. And as the last Adam, he did all that the first Adam failed to do. Brothers and sisters, he has done all that you and I continue to fail to do. Where Adam failed, Christ has triumphed. Where Adam sinned, Christ has obeyed. Where Adam was banished, Christ has been welcomed. Where Adam forfeited paradise, Christ won it back. And Christ has done all of this for us by his obedience to the law of God and by his submitting to the cross of God. Let us make no mistake about it. God requires perfection. There is no grading on a curve with God. If you want heaven and if you want forgiveness, if you want to avoid judgment and avoid hell, then you have to be absolutely stinking perfect every moment of every day for your entire life. You must be perfect. To borrow the language of the confession, God requires personal, total, exact, and perpetual obedience church, that is exactly what Christ has done for us. He has performed where we have utterly failed. Christ has come, and he is what we all should be. Which also means, and now we'll add a fifth R word, and I promise we'll be done. Christ is Redeemer. As our Redeemer in him, and through him, and by him, we guilty sinners... We stand to find hope and healing. Forgiveness and favor. Righteousness and reward. New life and eternal life. By looking to Christ, our guilt is removed, our sin is pardoned, our debt is paid, and our stain is cleansed. This is not only what Christ offers to us. This is what Christ has secured for us. And you know what? This is true even of those who have murdered their babies. Do you realize that's how deep and wide the grace of God in Christ is? We tend to think that the gospel is sort of for religious people. Yeah, we mess up. The gospel's good for the whites, the little white lies, the little sort of uh, light sins. But you know, you got to be a good guy. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Christ died for sinners. The gospel is that those who are well have no need of a physician. Christ did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. You ever wonder why everybody that followed around Christ in his incarnate ministry were the prostitutes and the, uh, just the dregs of society, the tax collectors, the drunkards? 
It was a motley crew. Why? Because we're a motley crew. And it is a motley crew who is in need of grace, in need of Christ. And so what we have in Christ is a tsunami that washes over us and cleanses us from every single sin, not just the little ones, but the big ones. The big, ugly ones that we don't talk about. The big, ugly ones that keep us up at night. The big, ugly ones that make us self-medicate and drink. The things that haunt us. Christ has come, and He extends us His hand. He says, come, have life, live. So I would encourage you, if you are a Christian this day, or if you are not a Christian, my encouragement is the same. Receive from Christ today. Rely upon Christ today and rest in Christ today. There is good news even for the worst of us. Remember what the Apostle Paul said. Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If God can save an ISIS member, God can save us suburbanites. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you this day for the sound of little ones in the sanctuary. We thank you for life. We pray that you would cause us to be those who would steward the life that you have entrusted to us faithfully. We pray that you would help us to be those who stand for life. uh, Life at the beginning stages and life at the end stages. We also pray that this day the gospel would ring in our ears. That your spirit would impress these truths upon our hearts and upon our souls. That those in this congregation, young or old, who have not come to trust in Christ, that your spirit would compel them this day. For the rest of us, that we would find grace and hope and mercy for this coming week. Sustain us and nourish us, we pray, even as we come to your table. In Christ's name, amen.